folks, and welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and today I'm super excited to have a dear longtime friend and medical colleague with us, Dr. Lynn Massengale, who's going to be talking about a number of things in his career as well as uh, medicine in general. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you very much, Shelley. I really appreciate you including me in this. Well, and we're just delighted to have you. The listeners will certainly enjoy what you've got to say, but let's do as I I do with all my guests and start out a little bit so they can know a little about your background, where you were born, raised, some family. Yes. Uh, Well, actually, I was was born and raised about six miles from here between Etowah and Athens. I grew up on a small dairy farm and was fortunate enough to come to Tennessee Wesleyan and uh, graduate from here and went to medical school in Memphis and became an ER doctor. I went to medical school intending to be a family physician. Dr. Herb Whittle in Etowah was my role model, and I wanted to be Herb Whittle until I found the ER and fell in love with that. Well, Dr. Herb, I go way back like you do, and, and just a wonderful gentleman. But what drew you, Lynn, to ER medicine? Well, when I did an ER rotation in medical school, I I discovered that, frankly, just the absolute sheer excitement of it. I liked the variety of it. Every room had a patient with a different problem. It could be an earache or a heart attack. But more importantly, I I learned that you probably had a chance every single day to deal with at least one or more true emergency, and you had a chance every day to be part of a team that helped save somebody's life every single day. And that was really, for me, the hook. Well, and, and I pretty well, as a, uh, when I uh, was in my internship, as you may recall, at UT Knoxville, we were able, two other uh, interns, and I actually started the ER service at uh, the old uh, Epperson Hospital, which, you know, we'll talk in a minute about how you came into play there later. But uh, just... Very exciting, and it it almost drew me in at at that point in time because I had no long-term desires other than what you're saying. Uh, I had a couple of role models that I wanted to be a family physician uh, when I finished all of my training, and and as I segued into uh, the military and then developed into OBGYN, still had this love for ER medicine. Now, as you began, where were you originally in that ER career. Yeah, I, I did my internship at UT Hospital, and during the latter part of that, and the next year afterwards, I started working in small rural ERs around Harriman, Jefferson City, mm-hmm. Etowah, a little bit in Athens, and just started working ER in these small places, mostly at night and on the weekend, and that was really how I got the bug, and then I had an opportunity, actually, to get a full-time job at UT Hospital in the ER as a staff doctor. And that was an experience, for sure. Uh, when, when you become staff, uh, you know, in a, in a major center like that. Now, as you began to look at medicine and how it was progressing and doing ER, how long did you do the ER medicine? Yeah, I actually saw patients for over 25 years, but uh, after the first year at UT uh, and a little bit of experience in these outlying places, I learned what you had already figured out here in Athens, for example, and that was that there was a need for somebody to staff the ER, and that historically it had been staffed by a rotation of the medical staff members. 
and they did their duty. They did that in service to the community, but they didn't really love it. You know, if you were a surgeon, you didn't really want to see a heart attack patient, or if you're a cardiologist, you didn't really want to see a, a surgical case. So uh, it appeared that, just like you discovered here, there was an opportunity to recruit some doctors, either friends or colleagues or new acquaintances, to help staff these emergency rooms. And um, that light came on about the second year. And so we actually got the contract, to one partner and I, to staff the contract hospital at UT and the hospital up in Sevierville, which is today called LeConte Medical Center. And those were our first two uh, 43 years ago, and we still staff those two today. Mr. Lynn, through the, uh, what I consider the, the remarkable journey, and let me say this as an aside, I've known plenty of people in various medical disciplines. I've bragged on Lynn, he, he doesn't need this, but I've bragged on to other colleagues and friends about the fact that he is the absolute smartest, most skilled medical business person I've ever known in my life because we folks in medicine are not business-like at all. <laughs> but take us through, Lynn, as you began that recruitment, uh, that those two hospitals, carry us through the career of, of the company itself. Well, thank you. I, 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 it's a nice comment, but I guess in fairness, um, I was never any smarter or better equipped than any of my colleagues. And I, I certainly did not graduate number one in my medical school class, I'll tell you that. But what I did have was the unique advantage of working in the ER. And the advantage of that was, in those days, we worked 12-hour shifts. We worked 7A to 7P for a week. Then we were off for a week. And then we worked 7P to 7A. And because it was shift work on those weeks off, you had no other duty or obligation. Mm -hmm. Patients never called you. You didn't have a committee meeting you had to go to hardly ever. So I basically had two full weeks a month to think about and grow a business. And most doctors don't have that. They're practicing every day, you know, five, six, seven days a week. So that, that was the advantage I had, just the happenstance of choosing ER and having a schedule that gave me a lot of time off so uh, I also at that time was able to go on very, very little sleep. So I would have two full weeks a month with no responsibility. And then on my week of night shifts for seven days, I learned that I could make do on about four hours of sleep a night, five mm -hmm. at the most. So even that week, I had half a day every day to work on the business. And, and I had a partner who was doing the same thing. And the next year, a third partner. And so I worked clinically those 14 shifts a month on average. And then the, the other days, I'd, I would go out, I'd talk to these outlying hospitals about our ability to staff their hospital. Uh, we'd recruit doctors, we'd do the payroll, just like you did when you first started. You know, you do everything yourself. And we did that uh, while we were working the shifts. And, uh, and in those days, the hospitals paid us by the hour, so we didn't really have to know much about billing. If anything, that changed later. But so we all, and it was relatively easy to find malpractice insurance. So it was easier then than it, than it became over time. But that was really the change. And so we had those two contracts. And, and, and in the second year going into the third, I literally drew a two hour circle around Knoxville in the car, about a hundred mile circle. And I said, that's the universe. And we're going to do all we can in that universe. And so for the next 10 years, 
we got one or two contracts a year within that circle. At the end of 10 years, I drew a two-hour circle in a 47-year-old single-engine airplane that I learned to fly. Uh, I grew up very near the McMinn County Airport, and I always admired the little Swift airplanes that some of their listeners will know about. And I just always loved the planes, so I learned to fly when I was an intern. And so at the 10th year, we drew a two-hour circle, and we brought in our first pure business partner to help take more of the business duties over so we could go out and recruit the doctors, work on quality of care, uh, work on uh, getting new business. And that circle was 300 miles. The airplane would go about 300 miles in two hours, so that's a pretty big circle. So for five years, we we got five new contracts a year. So by then we were up to, uh, you know, about 50 or so contracts. And then we decided we could do it nationally. And I started going around the country meeting with other groups that if I flattered us, I thought they looked like us. They were run by doctors, but with good business practices. They had a relatively small geography where they, my theory was you got to get in front of a problem or an opportunity within about two hours. You don't have two weeks to go deal with a problem administratively or otherwise. So I found these groups all over the country that uh, were interested in doing something together because the business aspects of medicine were changing. The insurance companies were becoming very powerful. There were new payment models coming out like HMOs and capitation, and we were all scared of and unsure about that. The hospitals had more and more high expectations about the service, and so it was all getting harder. And my pitch to all those groups was that if we were, that I was willing to bet that each of us was doing something better than the rest of us, and that if we would pool our best practices, our best clinical practices, and our best administrative practices that we would get better, smarter, faster than anybody else in America in emergency medicine. And that part turned out to be true. I made plenty of mistakes, but that part was right. So Dr. Jim George in New Jersey, who was an MDJD, was the first big group to join us. He had the best risk management and patient safety programs of anybody in America, I thought. Uh, The guys in South Florida were doing a better job of fee-for-service billing and coding and collecting and the hospitals had started wanting us to do our own billing. And so they had that figured out. Uh, By now, emergency medicine had become a board certified specialty and there were residency programs. Dr. Jim Ryback in Cleveland, Ohio, his group was doing the best job of recruitment of residency trained ER doctors. The guys in California knew the most about these new payment models because most of them started there. Capitation started there. The HMOs mostly grew up there after starting in Minnesota. And so I had these original partners, Randall Dabbs and John Staley, and we were kind of keeping the home fires burning, and they were, rather. And I was out talking to these other groups, and we just adopted each other's best practices across the whole United States. And that was really the the jet fuel that caused it to take off. And once we did that, each of us grew even faster. So that's, that's, that's really how it occurred. It was a combination of picking people that you trusted, that you thought had things figured out, bringing on strong business partners, not just doctor partners, but business partners to help with the business thing, uh, business aspects, and then to try to just uh, 
check our egos at the door and say, well, if Jim's doing it better, I need to do it Jim's way. Man, that's a journey and especially learning, like you say, the business aspects and the organization land, team health. Team health is, you know, we started out calling it Southeastern Emergency Physicians, but as we grew out of the South, we had to do something. So we called it Team Health, T-E-A-M. And so today we're uh, 12,000 doctors and we're 6,000 nurse practitioners and PAs and nurse anesthetists. We work in 47 states, about 800 hospitals, and about 2,000 post-acute facilities around the country. And each year we see about 28 million patients. Goodness gracious. Did you did you envision that with these two hospitals? Did you did you ever think that would happen? You know, one hundred percent of the plan was two hospitals. It was UT Hospital in Sevierville. And that was all the plan, full stop, until about a year and a half into it. But there was a point, I would say about the fifth year, when I actually in a hallucinatory moment sat down (laughs) and wrote down we're going to become the the biggest ER group in the country the best place for doctors to work and the best place for patients to take to be taken care of it took a long time for that to happen but but I at least uh, hallucinated it wrote it down uh, uh, about five years into it (laughs) hallucinated and and tell the folks now it's not just ER docs you've recruited Tell them the other specialties. Yeah, over time, uh, many of your listeners know that now, if you if you have a primary care physician and say an internist or a family practitioner, many of them today limit their practices to the office, so that when you go to the hospital, you get cared for by a doctor called a hospitalist. And uh, the some patients don't like that because it's it's meeting a new doctor sometimes at a scary time. The advantage of it is that the hospitalists, though, are really good at working in the hospital. They know how to make things happen. They know how to get test results at 4 a.m. They know how to get you out of the hospital at 2 in the afternoon, not just 7 in the morning. So there are some efficiencies to it. You know, there's pros and cons, but we're the largest hospitalist group in the country. We're the third largest anesthesiology group in the country. We have a, a small number of contracts where we provide general surgery, trauma surgery, orthopedics, and interestingly, a group that we call OBGYN hospitalists. They are, doc- they are OBGYN doctors with your basic training that you have, Dr. Griffith, but they limit their practice to just delivering babies in the hospital. That's all they do. They have no private practice. They just work shifts in the hospital and just, uh, if you will, catch babies. Wow. <laughs> and then we do some primary care, uh, some some urgent care. We do a little telehealth and we provide a, a fair amount of staffing, given your background, you'll appreciate, to uh, military facilities, mm-hmm. both hospitals and clinics. That's good. And you you know my original feelings about OBGYN hospitalists, and I won't bore the listeners with that. It was just that concept of how do you get to know the doctor that's going to deliver your baby? But then as I came around, folks, and, and tried to get, as many people have said, into the 21st century, it was, it was okay. And so these concepts are just amazing. And when you see the growth, uh, these are, this is the way it works. And, uh, and I think this model is outstanding. But when you look at the numbers, and, and you and I going all the way back as, as we did, 
And I remember as an aside, uh, when we started this ER group in Athens, just the three of us, there was a, uh, I was gonna be a family doc, so I did rotating. Then we had a surgeon, fellow became a surgeon, another one a family physician, the three of us uh, made a grand total of, uh, I think it was $3 per ER visit, if I'm not mistaken. The hospital here, folks, uh, that was started out, the old Epperson, they made $5. So there wasn't much money involved, but boy, did we learn a ton, much more than we ever would in the books. So what a, what a grand difference that I look at. Now, Lynn, as we move uh, forward in this, uh, your involvement now, uh, you're, you're, you're not having to do ER shifts or anything at this point in your life, right? You're right. It, it, it reached a point where, I, and I'm very sincere when I say this, a, a, a friend of mine says that, he, he described a guy one day, he said, he's a modest little man with much to be modest about. <laughs> and so uh, I try to stay pretty modest because it's not very hard to be modest if you know all the truth. <laughs> uh, I decided at a certain point that I just wasn't smart enough to stay up on all the medicine that I needed to and to learn all I needed to know about the business. A friend of mine says that emergency medicine is the first five minutes of everybody else's specialty, with the first five minutes of cardiology with a heart attack, with the first five minutes of a broken bone with orthopedics, with the first five minutes of an unexpected, unplanned, uncared for pregnant patient who's delivering as an emergency with the first five minutes of a child with an earache at two o'clock in the morning. We don't know anything about day two, but, but, but the breadth of things that you have to know something about is big. And when you call a specialist at two o'clock in the morning, if you call a gynecologist or you call an ophthalmologist or you call a cardiologist, they expect you to know enough about what you're calling about for them to know what they need to do. I can hang up the phone and go back to sleep. I can hang up the phone and put my clothes on and go to the hospital. But, but so the ophthalmologist, my friend Jonathan Sal, one of my best friends, says if the ER doctor can't tell you what the visual acuity is, you need to hang up the phone. Just as one example, uh, the orthopedist wants to know, did you measure the angle of the fractures? The cardiologist wants to know, what did the EKG look like with some specificity? So... Uh, we just, as we got bigger, I just, and the drugs, as you well know, the drugs change so rapidly. And if you get to where you have to look up every drug to know if there's a drug-drug interaction, say the patient comes in on five medications and I want to add one, if I know those other five, I don't have to spend any time. If I don't know two of them, I have to go look them up. And all of a sudden, I become the old, slow doctor. And I just didn't want to be the old, slow yeah. doctor. <laughs> the other thing that happened, and very few people know this, but I had two partners, and literally one day at Randall Dabbs Condo, where we always had our meetings, I walked in, they got there early, and they literally said, hey, we've been thinking about it. One of us has to be the CEO. We voted on it, you're it. Because up until that time, we were all equal partners, and they decided that I'd be the CEO because I wasn't there in time for the vote so uh, after that, I decided that I had to learn more about the business side of things. And, it's, and I also was really involved in emergency medical services on a pre-hospital basis. I was involved locally and taught paramedics and EMTs in Rome State. 
Then I became the EMS medical director for Tennessee. I really admire what the paramedics and the EMTs do in the field. I always say they do in the ditch and the dirt and the dark, many of the things that we do in the ER. So I really enjoyed working with them. But I had to give that up and the clinical practice as team health got bigger. But that was that was after 25 years of seeing patients. And I miss that the most. I miss laying hands on patients and talking to families. Uh, as I do after eight years of retirement. Sure, that is sure. absolutely it. Take us through, Lynn, because so many people now, and you brought up just briefly a moment ago, what we call now in the, in the field the mid-level specialty groups because so many people, and, and I don't fault this, it's just an evolving, about nurse practitioners, uh, the uh, physician assistants, and, and others that one will see initially many times on that first doctor visit and then maybe see the doctor the next visit. Take us through that involvement, if you will, not just from your standpoint with team health, but what you see as a long-standing physician, how that evolved and how that's developing now. Yeah, uh, I am happy to talk about that. You know, I have I have 6,000 colleagues that are nurse practitioners, PAs, or nurse anesthetists, also sometimes called CRNAs, mm-hmm. Certified Respiratory Nurse Anesthetists. Um, and, and historically, we did refer to those folks as mid-level providers or mid-level practitioners. The term that you hear now a lot is APCs, mm-hmm. Advanced Practice Clinicians, or APPs, Advanced, Advanced Practice Foot. Uh, advanced practice practitioners. And and so what happened over time was that that it became clear that a lot of what doctors can do can also be done by other people with some medical training. So if you take a really good nurse who has her RN and then she goes back and gets, gets her bachelor's degree or she does a four-year program and comes out with a bachelor's degree in nursing, she works a while, she gets some experience or he gets some experience and goes back and does two more years to get a master's, becomes a nurse practitioner, or a person who doesn't isn't a nurse goes and gets an undergraduate degree and becomes a physician's assistant, or a nurse does two or three years of training in anesthesia to become a CRNA. Those those practitioners can do many 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 things as well as the doctor can do them. And at least in our experience, the patient satisfaction with that is really high. They will sometimes spend more time with the patients than the doctor does. Um, so the patients mostly like it. Now, I will tell you, there are times when patients say, I miss seeing my doctor every visit in the office. You know, I miss not seeing the doctor. But right now, there are a number of doctors in Knoxville where if you want to go see an orthopedist or a neurosurgeon, your first visit is only with the nurse practitioner. The neurosurgeon won't see you on the first visit at all, unless it's an emergency. So the, the training for those folks varies substantially. Uh, uh, probably more variation in that than there is in medical training for doctors. But uh, by and large, they are skillful, they are smart, they are dedicated, but they really are in a, a way to have a lot of medical care provided that, that really increases access. I, I, tease people all the time and say the part you know the ER gets blamed a lot for patients with non-emergency problems being at the ER and that's true but it's mostly true for two reasons nobody really comes down and sits in the ER for an hour or two or three at three o'clock in the morning because they want to right 
They're usually there for, I always say everybody comes for pain or blood or fear, but they're usually there for, for, for one or two reasons. One is they don't have any insurance and they have a hard time being seen by a physician. Some physicians will and some physicians won't take patients with no insurance, as you know. Some will or won't take 10 care patients, but they may not have financial means and so they have to go somewhere. And the other group is the group that just can't get in to see the doctor. And what, because the doctors are busy, practices are busy. You know, the population's aging. 10,000 people a day in America turn 65 and go on to Medicare. Medicare patients, elder patients 65 and older, as you know, increasingly have chronic diseases that require a lot of time to manage. So, uh, and doctors are working fewer hours now than they used to. There's a current generation of doctors who have a better sense of work-life balance. And while I used to criticize that, I, I decided not to criticize that. Maybe that's, maybe that's better. But the punchline is the combination of less availability of the doctors and a sicker patient population and a growing population in America, somebody needs to be available to see the patient. So the nurse practitioners, PAs, CRNAs really perform a vital role. Around the country, they have more or less autonomy based on state regulation. Many must work under the supervision of a doctor with different definitions of supervision. In some states, they can practice independently, but they're a huge part of the healthcare workforce. I think it's a great description of how that's evolved and, and what takes place today. And I had folks, my first nurse practitioner appointment a few months ago, a uh, little anxiety, no criticism, could not have been a, a greater experience, very intelligent, thorough, uh, talked with my friend, uh, the doc, and we got some tests scheduled, which were necessary, and, but it was a great experience, and I passed that on to friends, just like you said. So we older docs coming around, I think, make, make a difference. Absolutely. And as we look, Lynn, that's a good point about the aging population because we do take up uh, a ton of the Medicare dollars. End of life does a lot of that. And, and then as the population ages, as you're pointing out, with that many thousands daily, uh, we're, we're seeing that difference. The other big point you bring up is, is the work-life balance. This was something when you and I came along, we just... We just went to work. Uh, UT Hospital, I can recall as an intern, putting in over 100 hours a week. You did too. Uh, nobody said anything about it. It's just what you did. And, and I applaud the, the physicians for that and their families. Uh, and are we seeing, or is it just me reading different things, more physicians retiring earlier, where I went to 70, could have gone a little longer, uh, I've had some friends recently retire at 55, 60. Is that a trend you're seeing and getting an idea? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great segue into two things. One is just that direct point, which is that people, are, the physicians are retiring earlier. You and I both have had colleagues who practiced, you know, much, much, much past 65. And, and now you don't see that nearly as much. The other thing that we saw in stunning numbers was during COVID, starting in about March of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, the, the number of people in healthcare who just quit, nurses, doctors, x-ray techs, people working in the front office, nursing home uh, employees, uh, 
that stunning numbers of people just threw in the towel. Uh, we lost a lot of our doctors. We, I can't tell you how many doctors I had said, look, I don't care what you pay me. It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's about a 50% rate of assault of emergency department personnel, doctors and nurses who work in the ER. About half of them have been physically assaulted. But what, they'll, what they said to me during COVID was, look, I signed up knowing that I was taking a personal risk. I didn't sign up to take a deadly disease home to my family. And I don't care what you pay me, I'm done. So we, we saw that it has led to a dramatic shortage that you're well aware of and have talked about some about just the staffing levels in hospitals and nursing homes and other places right now. It's, it's tight. And, you know, the, those, the folks that are there are working hard. They're working shorthanded. Uh, they're doing very, very good work uh, at times uh, under a lot of pressure. So it's it's a it's a it's a bit of a scary time to be to be sick, as well, just because of how shorthanded they are. So there have been there have been early retirements across the board, and people even the profession just for other other work. And that that can lead, I suppose, uh, to my next question: Are we seeing Lynn less uh, college grads going into the medical? Field, I haven't checked it in a year or two. You know what? What you see is that the, the number, the, probably the best number to look at, is the the process. I was not in a fraternity in college, but the process from medical school to internship is a little bit like the fraternity and sorority process, in that you have to pick the fraternity and the fraternity has to pick you, mm-hmm. right? So if you're coming out of medical school and you want to be an intern at Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins has to want you. doesn't matter how bad you want them. you got to both want each other. And so that there's this thing that you well know about, some of your listeners may know about, called the match. And so how, what, let's just say there are 1,500 slots for new ER first-year residents. How many of them matched? That is, how many doctors picked? Johns Hopkins Emergency Medicine, and how many of those did Johns Hopkins pick? And so what you see now is most of the time, there's some exceptions year in, year out, and some years different specialties are in favor. Anesthesia is in favor right now. Uh, ER was out of favor last year. Quite a few positions in emergency medicine last year didn't match. And a lot of that was, hey, I don't mind what I want to be an ER doctor and take care of all these COVID patients. So what you do see now is by and large, all the positions fill. They do ultimately mostly fill. There are fewer number of applicants for the spots than there used to be because there just are, you know, there, a lot of people just view medicine as less attractive as especially than it used to be for a variety of reasons. Most doctors, as you know, hate the electronic medical record almost as much as the patients hate it when they go to the doctor and the doctor's sitting there typing the whole time. Most of the doctors don't like dealing with insurance companies. So there, there's a lot about it that's not appealing. Uh, that has, has decreased it, and there are more residencies in some specialty than there used to be. But by and large, I think we can rest assured there are enough people going into these programs that there will continue to be people come out. But, but if you read the predictions, there is an overall shortage of doctors today across the board, and that's, that has created a lot of opportunity for nurse practitioners, PAs, and CRNAs, which is, again, as we both yeah. talked about, a helpful thing. Well, and the other thing, Lynn, when I I did, oh gosh, 16 years 
in a three-person group. Then I went solo for 22, 23 years and retired. And when I retired, gosh, eight years ago, if I'm not mistaken, reading some stats, there were about 15 to 16% of us nationally that were quote unquote solo by definition. Now that could be wrong uh, to a degree. Last year I was reading, and if I, if I saw the correct number, that's down to about 6% who actually are solo, which leads into the uh, so-called you know, hospital-owned uh, young physician coming out of training with high debt, et cetera. And then, uh, and that's fine because I can't imagine being solo these days if I were coming out at all. And so I think that's a trend we're also seeing, I guess, uh, as well. It's, it's really been a stunning change over time that, and the pace of that change has accelerated. There are low single digit now, or maybe mid single digits, five or 6% of all doctors in solo or one or two person practices. Another couple of statistics that are pretty sobering. Only about 18% of doctors in America today are in, independ are in independent practice at all, of any size. 72%, excuse me, 82% are employed by the hospital or employed by a big group like us or by a big orthopedic, nationwide orthopedic group. So more and more and more you're seeing doctors say, look, I just want to be a doctor. I don't want to deal with, I don't want to hire and fire staff. I don't want to deal with the insurance company. I don't want to do the billing. I want to come do my time, see my, work my time. I don't mean do my time. Work my, work my time, see my patients, take good care of them, and just have, you know, somebody else can take care of, the, of all the business stuff. And there's pros and cons of that. You know, you and I remember the day where there were firebrand doctors on the medical staff who would just pound the table at the medical staff meetings about changes they wanted to see at the hospital. And you don't see that as much anymore. You know, there's just not as much of that engagement. Doctors' Lounge used to be a place that, a lot of camaraderie and both about patient care and about other things I might admit but you don't see much of that anymore so so physicians being employed by the hospital uh, over a third of all hospitals there there are about uh, there are about 700,000 actively practicing emergency excuse me physicians of any kind in America today over a third of them uh, are employed by the hospital and only about 18% of them are not employed by somebody other than their partners. Major changes, but as you and I know, time marches on and each area of, of uh, professions, not just medicine, change. And I think as we look at it, we, we kind of get there and do the best we can as, as patients and certainly physicians. Now, folks, Lynn and I were talking earlier, he's involved in a... Uh, kind of a, a new thing, not necessarily new per se, but tell us, Lynn, about your uh, recent uh, involvement in uh, what is known, I believe, as Cedar Recovery. Take yeah. us through that. Yeah, um, uh, totally unrelated to team health. A few years ago, I, I, I decided I wanted to try to get involved somehow or another in helping patients that, were, that had a problem with addiction. Uh, there's a history of addiction in my own family. Uh, uh, it's had a big effect on my family 
and uh, I've seen that firsthand. Uh, in the emergency department, you see, you see the impact all the time, whether it's alcohol or drugs, the uh, toll it takes on the individual and their family, and sometimes on innocent victims who get hurt in car accidents by drunk drivers or others. So I decided a few years ago I wanted to be somehow involved I didn't really want to run anything, and I didn't really want to start anything, but I wanted to be involved. And, and several things happened. One is I, I learned uh, the hard way, I, I, but I learned that, in my opinion, addiction and substance use disorder is the term that they prefer now instead of addiction uh, because of all the stigma that's associated with addiction and, and uh, being an addict, if you will. But uh, I stopped seeing it as a moral failure. I stopped seeing it as a personal choice and I started seeing it more as a disease. Uh, when I realized that most patients today, you know, there were 100,000 people died last year of overdoses in America. The third leading cause of death in America is overdoses. Um, not to get into a political discussion, but the fourth leading cause of death in America today is COVID. Interesting. We all think of that as kind of being gone, but it's the fourth leading cause of death in the country. But addic- uh, but overdoses is the third leading cause of death in America, and it mostly kills young, productive people, young, young productive age people. So I, I, I tried to figure out how could I be involved somehow or another in helping patients that were addicted. And I learned that uh, the majority of patients, over half the patients who are addicted, didn't get addicted by trying a recreational drug. They got addicted by a prescription drug written by a doctor. There is a rap guy named Macklemore, and he does a song called My Doctor is My Pusher. And he's talking about an unethical doctor who's prescribing narcotics. But ethical doctors prescribe narcotics. We prescribe narcotics every day in the emergency room. You prescribe narcotics perhaps for your post-op patients in your practice or orthopedic patients. Some of those patients get addicted to, to even reasonable prescriptions. And then they get cut off. At some point, the doctor stops and they turn to illicit drugs and they turn to drugs on the street and they turn to prescription drugs that have been stolen and they turn to prescription drugs that have been manufactured in Mexico or other places and those patients become addicted. So I, I finally figured out that this is not not a moral failing. This is a disease state, and they need they need medical care. They need psychological counseling in many cases. They need to have a safe place to live. They need to have a job. They need to have transportation. They need to have child support. So I, I so they need to have child care so they can go to their jobs. So I got involved in this little thing in Middle Tennessee called Cedar Recovery. And it was a, a young man named Joe Bond who had learned, like his mom broke her hip, had to go in the hospital. In the course of that admission, they found out that she was addicted to prescription drugs and had been for a long time. So he got interested. He recruited a guy named Dr. Stephen Lloyd, who was the medic, who was the opioid addiction czar under Governor Haslam, who wrote all the regulations about opioid treatment in Tennessee, and some other terrific team members had started this thing called Cedar Recovery. They had three clinics in Middle Tennessee and uh, I went on their board and got involved along with another friend and, and tried to help them some to grow. And so now they have eight clinics uh, around the uh, in East, East and Middle Tennessee. They have about 2,500 patients. 
and Athens is their newest one that opened in January. And it's interesting to talk about Athens for a couple of reasons, uh, mostly as a proof statement for how wrong I was about addiction. Athens has the highest, the Athens Clinic has the highest percentage of patients with commercial insurance. They started out mostly treating 10 care patients and patients that were indigent that they could get onto a state grant. But Athens has 30% of the patients that have commercial insurance. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means they're working people. They're not people that are unemployed. They're people that are holding out a full-time job enough to have commercial insurance, United, Blue Cross, Aetna, whatever. They have the lowest rate of all the clinics. They have the second lowest rate of all the clinics for, uh, for missed appointments. They have, the, they have less than 10% of their patients fail to come to an appointment, which is unusually low. They have less than 10% of their patients who fail to see the counselor, not just the doctor. They don't just come for the medicine. They come to get counseling about how to stay off drugs, how to avoid drugs. And so what that means is that our perception that we have of the opioid patient, the patient that's addicted to drugs, isn't always right. It's not always a patient that's living behind the dumpster or in their car, even though there are some people that are having to live like that. They are our neighbors. Uh, they have a stunning number of patients that are Medicare patients, uh, which is either you only get on Medicare one of two or three ways. You either have chronic renal disease or you're over 65 by and large. But uh, what Athens has proven is that there's a bunch of people out there that are our friends and neighbors who are struggling with this. The office manager here is Debbie Johnson. Debbie's a community person. She's been here a long time, been in healthcare for a long time, grew up here, and she's a, she treats these people like they're family. I think that's a big reason that people come and stay. Dr. Sarah Connaughton is the medical director, a terrific physician, very engaged in the community. So it's a long-winded way of saying that there are a lot of people doing good work. It's not just Cedar. I'm not, it's not a commercial for Cedar. It is a commercial to say that there are good people with, with addiction problems and it's hard for them to get good care, but there is care out there. Oh, that's awesome. I will look forward to actually going and meeting these folks because you may be aware or not, but in my retirement of eight years, I've spent a little over seven helping with an addicted men's shelter through our church, St. Paul's Episcopal, as the physician there and have had to learn, as you would expect, completely new paradigm, I love that word, about addiction medicine. And I'm like you, I had these, these uh, I guess, uh, things that I felt were correct about addicts. My whole uh, outlook has changed as yours have. Uh, when I could see friends, when I could see young people in this community at our Grace House shelter, uh, who I had watched grow up become that secondary to prescription meds. You're absolutely right. And for you and me in the medical field to view this totally different. So I'm, I'm excited you're a part of that. And I look forward to meeting these folks and seeing their impact uh, on, on our friends and neighbors that are here. And certainly folks that, that you would have known just from growing up in the area. It's, Unbelievable. Thanks for sharing that, man. Now, as I wrap up, 
and, and I can get you back at another time in the future, and I'm sure you will come. Promise me that you'll come and join me again. I'd be honored. <laughs> but what will you say with your long history uh, in medicine? What will you say to that young person who's, who's a uh, you know, junior in college that wants to apply to go to medical school, knowing the things that you've learned over your career? Tell me what you would say to that young person about choosing a career in medicine. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's such an interesting question, and I, I really appreciate you being asked. And I was aware of some work, by the way, that you had done in the past with some of these patients, and hats off to you, and thank you for that. Uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I grew up on a family farm, and, and I think it probably was not pleasant for my dad when I told him I didn't really want to farm the rest of my life. And I loved the farm. I loved my grandfather and loved the farm. And, but I didn't, I didn't really want to do that. But today, there are a lot of doctors who will tell their, their children, don't go into medicine. A lot of doctors don't like it because of the hassle and some of the, the challenges that, that, it, that it is. The same for nursing. Um, only one of my, I have, a, I have a very large family and I have a lot of grandchildren. Only one of them went into medicine. She's a nurse. Um, so uh, I, I've not been very successful at convincing my own family to do this. But... But I just would say a couple of things. You know, there are there are many, many, many ways to to have a life that's uh, satisfying, and and I've read a lot about just the topic of happiness. There's been a lot of great research done on happiness, and and as you know, happiness really comes down to things like relationships and purpose and and uh, things like that and it has it has almost no correlation to money it may in fact have a negative correlation to money but uh, there are lots of ways to have a satisfying career that you have purpose that you have meaning that you have service uh, to other people whether that you could uh, you know people who paint houses or people that pump gas there's a lot of ways to serve your fellow man and feel good about it there aren't many ways to do it uh, and and literally help people keep life or keep a high quality of life. And in medicine, you get to do that, whatever your role is. And even if you have an administrative role in medicine, if you're the hospital CEO or you're the person that recruited doctors or you're the person in payroll who gets the bills out, gets the doctors paid or the nurses paid, every one of those people is doing something to help effect the care of a patient. And there's very little more satisfying than that. Um, I have a thing hanging in my office uh, that a little boy sent me, and er almost every word is misspelled and it's written crooked and my name's spelled <laughs> wrong. And he wrote, Dear Dr. Massengale, thank you for taking the kernel of corn out of my ear, your friend Bo. Uh, uh, but to get that or to get uh, a family member, thank you for helping save their loved one's life. That's that's the that's the beauty of, of being able to be involved in healthcare is mm. you, you get to be with people at their worst or people when they're scared and you get to help with that. Uh, you know the economic rewards are fine, but they're not the biggest reason. The biggest reason is just starts, you know helping helping people at a time that they need it. And again, you can do that lots of ways, but but healthcare is a great way to do it. And uh, the, as far as I'm concerned, the benefits wildly wildly outweigh the hassles. Great. Super statement. I love that. 
And, and I have said too, Lynn, to young people asking my advice, absolutely. I feel the same way you do. And, and we hope that those young people uh, could become future physicians, nurses, whatever, to make that effect. I don't know, looking back on my long career, you on yours, that we could have found anything better to have done to, to serve and to feel good at the end of the day. But I greatly appreciate you being with me. Look forward to seeing you uh, on uh, another podcast uh, later. And folks, if you have questions for Dr. Massengill, please send them to me at shellgriff at gmail.com, S-H-E-L-G-R-I-F at gmail.com. I can get those to him and in a future episode be able to answer those for you. But it's been a real delight to do that today. And as I say to each and every one of our listeners, I hope you have a safe and healthy day, and I'll see you a little further up the road.